gentlemen, friends, enemies, welcome to this Odds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Mr. Drew Davendale. Greetings. So today, for no appreciably good reason, we decided we'll take a look at a couple of animated adaptations of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, just to see what they would be like, if nothing else. Two films to look at, obviously. So there's the 1978 version from Ralph Bakshi. Is that how you pronounce that? I've never actually had to pronounce that now I come to think about it. I've always heard oh. it as Bakshi and I can't think of any yeah. other way to pronounce it, so I'm going with Bakshi, yes. Yeah. I think it's fair to say rather more well-regarded than, than the thankfully mostly forgotten television uh, movie, Return of the King, created by directors Jules Vass and Arthur Rankin Jr. of many terrible, terrible things, <laughs> um, which I think mainly the reason we're doing this podcast now is that I hadn't heard of this until... I was looking about looking about things a, a couple of months back, and it, I, I was flabbergasted because I did not think there was any sort of adaptation after uh, Lord of the Rings, the same date version ended, because it ends kind of more or less halfway through the books. And I've always thought it was a shame that that was never returned to and finished off. And seeing that there was some animated version, albeit not from the same people that would you would think finish that story, well, piqued my interest. And um, yes, now we all have to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess we're probably best off starting, I think, with having a chat about the first Lord of the Rings film, the 78 version. So, Drew, I think that's something you would like to tell us about, as yes. far as I'm aware. Yes, Scott, yes it is. It took until 2001 for a film to truly do justice to J.R. Tolkien's fantasy epic, The Lord of the Rings, and that required over $300 million, incredibly dedicated writers and producers, Nearly a decade of time from pre-production to the final extended cut DVD release and, crucially, vast advancements in computer-aided special effects and composition tools. Before that though, probably the most notable adaptation was the one we're going to talk about, the UK-US-Spain animated version created by Ralph Bakshi, uh, an animator and director who had created waves and criticism with his adult-oriented animations Fritz the Cat heavy traffic, and the well-intentioned but of questionable taste, Coonskin. Um, but could an animated feature done a quarter of a century earlier in a fraction of that time and with a budget of only $8 million give Peter Jackson's epic a run for his money? Well, no, obviously no. It was always going to be no, but we'll get to that. <laughs> a large part of the complexity and cost of the production particularly things like battle scenes, were dealt with by cheating. Oh, they call it rotoscoping. But, but filming actors fighting and then simply tracing over them just isn't cricket old bean. It's cheating, no matter what you call it. But in all seriousness, rotoscoping those portions was a sensible route, and obviously not without skill. Large-scale battle scenes of the type necessary for a story like this would most probably have been completely exorbitantly prohibitive if um, undertaking standard animation and while it lends such scenes are very distinctive and in the case of for example the Uruk High Helm's Deep sequences a spectacularly ugly aesthetic it does put it very much at odds with the portions of the film animated in a more traditional way and the two never really mesh. The film emits several notable sequences for example the visit to Tom Bombadil's house the similar omission of which in Peter Jackson's adaptation caused, let's charitably call it consternation and disappointment, 
<laughs> Though, personally, I'm fine with it because I happen to think it's a sequence which doesn't belong in the book. Never mind the bewildering distraction it would be in a film. But I digress. <laughs> but it still manages to be reasonably faithful to its source, even if it does end, as Scott had mentioned, about midway through the second part of the three volumes. Even at 133 minutes, however, it does suffer from the trimming down of such a weighty tome. Not having had the luxury, though really to do the world justice, it was a necessity, of taking the time to establish the world and the stakes that Peter Jackson had for his version. So the world never feels as well established nor as full, as, full of history as it ought to, and any feeling that it does contain these things almost certainly comes from familiarity with the source material, not this film itself. With the limitations that Bakshi had to work with, he made a pretty decent stab of things. Though I have my doubts about how well anyone completely unfamiliar with The Lord of the Rings will be able to comprehend the goings-on. It's a reasonably compelling film, but I suspect how much enjoyment one can derive from it will depend substantially on how enamoured they are of the animation style. And for me that amount is really not a lot. And I particularly dislike the look of the hobbits, rather crucial to the whole enterprise, who look less like an interesting diminutive humanoid race and more like children. Which is to say they look exactly like cartoon children. <laughs> Apart from Sam, who looks like some kind of Disney witch. <laughs> or rather, less charitably, as for instance the Onions AV Club put it, a retarded toad. Much is redeemed though by solid work by the cast, particularly John Hurt's Aragorn, Michael Graham Cox's Boromir, and Anthony Daniels of all people. Not sounding particularly like C-3PO as Legolas. As an aside, I applaud Bakshi's desire to make the elves seem in some way different, but the oddly shaped and oriented eyes kept making me squint uncomfortably. <laughs> yeah. The critical response to Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings was mixed, but it was commercially successful, um, so I'm unclear as to why exactly the rest of the film was never produced and was only finished in spirit by those hacks at Rankin Bass, of which more soon. It's not because Bakshi died. Somehow, somewhen, that idea entered my head. I think as a result of something in the DVD excess for the film trilogy by Peter Jackson that Bakshi's work was an influence on. But it's not that, as he's still alive. So where I got the idea that he died, I have no idea. The main reason seems to be that he fell out with United Artists, who released the film as The Lord of the Rings, instead of the, crucially, much more accurate The Lord of the Rings Part 1, as Bakshi had wanted which not only pissed off the director, but misled and angered moviegoers, quite understandably. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but studio executives are arseholes. <laughs> but that's not well-known information, so keep it in the down low, okay? <laughs> in the end, for all its drawbacks, it's worth watching once, not least because its distinctive style, or, more aptly, styles, and its horrendous melange of about seven, is probably quite unlike anything else you've ever seen. And also there's you know, some fun to be had in trying to spot the acknowledged influences it had in the 2001 film trilogy. But I wouldn't make any strenuous efforts to do so. Yeah, I really quite like Lord of the Rings, but a lot of that's somewhere between nostalgia and respect for the source material than anything that's sort of inherently good or inherently the values of this film itself. Um, you had you'd seen this before, Scott? Then you yes, say nostalgia. Um, See, this was new to me. This is the first time I'd seen it. Yeah, because I I remember. I mean, I, I'd read Lord of the Rings at a very young age. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly certain I finished The Hobbit, and my dad just handed me the uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Hmm. 
and even though I wouldn't have been able to like grasp all of it at that time, it was still enough to to get on and get the story. And I've revisited that many times, uh, certainly throughout school and throughout my life. I mean, by the time I got to you know, the end of high school, I'm pretty sure I'd read through that Lord of the Rings at least six times. You did. So, I do remember you doing yeah. that for your RPR in higher English. Um, yeah, which I did because I didn't need to read it again. <laughs> so it was already pretty much memorised by that point. I was thought um, too that actually the reason I ever read The Lord of the Rings, which I didn't do till just after high school, was because of you, more or less foisting th- the books upon me. <laughs> Here, take it, read it. So yeah, at some point it must have shown up on television back in the days. And, and I know it must have been when I was still quite young because I was scared as the dickens of those orcs. Something about that... that the that glowing red the eyes. Strange glowing eyes, the way it, it seemed out, and the way that it seemed like it's... They were, it seems like you're watching a nice, happy cartoon, and then these bastards invade and looked scary as hell. Um, so, uh, again, I could remember sort of flashes of it from my childhood, and I've not really revisited it since then. I had it on DVD sitting on a shelf. I don't think I'd ever watched it until, until about, well, nowish. Or rewatched it certainly, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, I mean, the flaws are apparent, as you say. It's it's too cut down. Um, it does skip through a lot of things. I've never been able to watch it without having the backup of knowing what's been cut out and being able to kind of fill that in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my head. you know, it's, it's the same reason why I can watch something like June and still quite like it because I can I can fill in the bits that aren't being explained or have just been glossed over or ignored because I already know that. But it's I, I can imagine it would be a bit more puzzling to audiences who are not off a with the source material. I'm not as upset about the graphical style as you are, I think. Um, I, I still think this looks pretty remarkable. And the rotoscoping thing, I think, works quite well. Certainly, as you say, in the action scenes and all that kind of thing, I think it gives it quite a distinctive look and something that's a bit more... It, it, it comes closer to realism than just a standard animated adaptation would, and I think that does give it a, a certain... A certain I don't know what. Well, a, in this case, it would be... A certain distinctive look, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, I'm not upset by it, but it is. I don't like the look of a lot of it, but I do appreciate it, its distinctiveness. Yeah, which is something to be. There is something to be said for something that isn't like other things are. Mm. An original. It's not a, quite originality, but uh, certainly it very much has its own character. Yeah, which I appreciate, even if I don't particularly care for that character. Yeah, and uh, I think that it is. I think the main reason I wanted to cover it was is that it just seems to be something that is pretty much forgotten these days it's a footnote at best and i think it deserves a little bit more respect for that i mean this is a you can see how it's influenced the well no question better adaptations that peter jackson's done but uh, i think this does deserve at least some respect and i think if you've got any uh love for either jackson's trilogy or more importantly i suppose the books themselves I would I would urge you to go and seek this out. It's an interesting uh, film. It's not going to take up too much of your time. I think it looks quite remarkable. It's got a great soundtrack to it as well. And it's just, I think, an interesting film that seems to just have gone under the radar. I mean, I'm, not that I'm perhaps so au fait with a film culture as I, as I once was. I don't really read the trades or anything like that. But uh, Lord of the Rings seems to be a film that just is not mentioned at all when you're talking about animated works. And perhaps rightly so, it's not the greatest, but I think it is at least a, an interesting and ambitious project that deserves somewhat more recognition than it is currently receiving, which is basically to have been forgotten about. So that's that is really why I wanted to bring this to, to people's attention if you've not done so already. Seek this out if you can find it uh, without having to spend too much money on it. Uh, I think it's well worth giving a bash, and if it ever pops up on the uh, television schedules, uh, it's definitely worth recording and 
give it a watch at some point. Um, as I say, particularly for fans of the, the source material. Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I as much as I love the books, I actually think it's got a lot of value for fans of Peter Jackson's film trilogy, of which I am one. Yeah, it almost feels like it ought to have been included as the incredibly substantial amount of extras that are on. <laughs> Yeah, uh, those extended edition DVDs because yeah. yes, while Tolkien as a writer is incredibly descriptive, so there's a unless you really stray from the source material, that there's a very narrow range of how you can interpret a lot of the characters and settings, because mm. Tolkien can take two pages to describe the room of one yes. um, part of Rivendell or something, so that that the characters and settings in this look so similar to the Peter Jackson stuff is not surprising given they're both working on the same thing but that said there are still very strong influences on that again as I say as I said in my my um, introduction they are acknowledged the the two animators that were the artists I guess the two artists whose work informed a lot of Peter Jackson's trilogy that you hear from a lot the the Canadian guy and the English guy, whose names I have entirely forgotten, I'm afraid. <laughs> One of them may be called John, but <laughs> it's not relevant. Uh, they're talking about it a lot, and they mention it a lot, and Peter Jackson mentions it a lot. And so there are some sequences that are just straight out lifted from... Yeah, it could be an animated storyboard kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's really interesting. I guess you have to temper that slightly with the fact that they're both working from the same very, very descri- um, descriptive, illustrative source. But uh, it is interesting that it's so has so influenced, even though it's a fairly minor work in terms of greater popularity. It just it feels like it does feel like it should be an extra on that because it's a companion piece almost. Like here was yeah. a yeah, storyboards are very good terms. Like the whole film could be the storyboard for a lot of Peter Jackson's adaptation of it. And yeah. so if you if you like those films in particular, I think it's very much worth a, a look for the kind of a background to those. Yes, and as I say, I, I don't think it's anything like as good, but when I had it sitting up on my shelf, sitting next to the Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson's films, um, it, it sort of felt right <laughs> on the shelf. Uh, but I, I think that's a, a good way of putting it, Drew. It's a, a very good companion piece to Peter Jackson's films. And yes, I'm sure there must be some fans of that around. Uh, it was, I believe, a relatively popular film. I believe it, um, the trilogy only made a couple of billion dollars. It wasn't that big in the end, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, Scott, talking as we were of interesting adaptations of Tolkien and things that are fitting companion pieces to Peter Jackson's, quite frankly, masterpiece in terms of as much as you could do with bringing that to film, I think. That's pretty much where we stop. Um <laughs> So how about we just talk about steaming turds instead? <laughs> Not to give things away too much, but, and I know I can speak for Scott here, we don't think so highly of The Return of the King, the uh, Rankin-Bass <laughs> 1980 animated thing, with its, <laughs> with, um, which I have mentally filed under ugly and please, for the love of all things holy, stop the singing. Uh, but, but Scott can fill us in a bit more substantially than that. Yes. Return of the King. Dear God. <laughs> For its faults, the first Lord of the Rings that we just spoke about there did a reasonable job of running through the bulk of the narrative of the events 
up until the Battle of Hornburg, or yeah, as I say, the bulk of the first two books, even if the characterization suffered. Now, this Return of the King struggles to tell even a portion of the book that it's supposed to be adapting, even when leaving characters out entirely. But thankfully, they've been cut to focus on that most important character in Tolkien's firmament, the Minstrel of Gondor. <laughs> How full of thanks we are. And he's going to sing for us. I cannot contain my thanks. My thanks are going to overflow and drown us all. Yeah, our minstrel, as a narrative device, actually worked quite well in, for instance, Disney's Robin Hood. Hmm. <laughs> Not so much in The Lord of the Rings, which, yes. which has no place whatsoever. <laughs> uh, this is framed as Bilbo, Frodo, Sam, Gandalf and Elrond sitting around, presumably in Rivendell, celebrating an apparently dementia-addled Bilbo's <laughs> birthday, reminding him of Sam and Frodo's troubles in Mordor, and how Frodo lost his finger in the struggle with Gollum at the Cracks of Doom, with lip service paid to events elsewhere. Or at least the sort of events that would be suitable for musical adaptation, sort of. <laughs> making this one of the least satisfying narrative adaptations I've ever seen. Uh, so yes, we are damned to suffer a million ditties about Frodo and the Ring, and Aragorn facing down the Dark Lord's army, of which precisely one is not a screeching offence to the ears, which is bad enough, but the bulk of the story and narration is left to Samwise Gamgee, who here sounds less like the stoic, rustic voice of courage that Tolkien intended, and more like a 1920s gangster stereotype. <laughs> yeah, I've got to destroy the ring, see? <laughs> now, I don't necessarily blame Roddy McDowell for this, for he is playing him. Um, the writing is atrocious, but it is a laughable performance. I laughed a lot when I wasn't swearing. I may have idly wondered in the past why tales of historical fiction are littered with old world accents, even when it's clearly not it's not set in, say, England or anything like that. But the answer, it turns out, is that it sounds super weird when it's full of American accents. Now, I don't have any logical backup That's to that. That's conditioning, statement. Scott. I think it's, it's conditioning. It's nonetheless unquestionably true. This film sounds super weird, <laughs> and the casting just doesn't help. McDowell, at least I can understand, and there's some veteran voice talent like Don Messick around, although admittedly he is awful in this, uh, the mouth of Sauron sounding like a less threatening Skeletor wannabe. Admittedly, this came well before Masters of the Universe, but don't get fresh with me, young man. Yeah, Casey and- Kasem just sounds so out of place in this film, doesn't he? <laughs> um- the rest of the cast are now forgotten stand-up comedians and, of all people, John, John Houston, <laughs> who I continually forget took up acting towards the end of his career, apparently just for the hell of it. I mean, he did a really good job in Chinatown. Yeah. I just know why he thought, well, the next thing I should obviously do is an, is an animated <laughs> wizard. Because yes. a lot of the cast is returning from Rankin Bass's The Hobbit, which I have to say, actually, isn't actually anything like as bad as this is, you know. The cast and the animation are largely the same. Yes, I did not watch that because I watched this one first and it put me... (laughs) (laughs) I watched these in order. I watched the... For a book I said, I hadn't watched these before, so I didn't actually have that much knowledge of them. I I had in my head that The Lord of the Rings was actually Rankin Bass as well, but just done by somebody working for them rather than them. Right. It got into my head that they were a trilogy, that it went The Hobbit, Ralph Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. I'm I'm obviously comfortably disabused of that notion now, yes. <laughs> but I did watch them all in sequence, um, chronologically, story-wise. This is very much the worst. Yeah, I mean, narratively, it's a mess, and the visuals are much worse. The character design is just horrible, with orcs looking like spherical cats, and even the humans look really odd. Uh, subjective, perhaps, but it's a really ugly film, and artless, 
particularly in today's company. Tonally, it's much less violent than Lord of the Rings, uh, jarringly so, if you were to watch them back to back. If you've watched any of the making of documentaries on Peter Jackson's films, you'll no doubt remember the care, attention and consideration that he took into what stays in the film and what must go for myriad reasons. Now, <laughs> I would love to be present for the equivalent meeting on this film and just to count how many hallucinogens were present, particularly when they added nonsense like hobbits will evolve to become humans in a few generations, which is mind-bogglingly daft. Oh, I'd no forgotten about that, but I remember thinking, I must have tweeted about that at the time. I remember, I had forgotten about that. That's, yes. You don't understand how evolution works. You don't understand the story. It makes no sense. Oh. <laughs> and why did they even feel the need to put that in? I just don't understand it on a number of levels. I don't know. Why not just say, like, because the suggestion is kind of the hobbits eventually passed out of the world, or maybe the suggestion in the book is they're still there. Yeah. That, that we live in what was Middle Earth at this age of man now, the hobbits, we just never see them. But no, no, they, they turned into men because. <laughs> Yes. But but there weren't there already men in your story. Um They were different men. They were they were different humans and these have turned into different humans. Over there looks something shiny. Uh, so uh, the acid reduced additions inside the emissions are perhaps more puzzling. To be fair, Gimli and Legolas don't have the most to do in the source material in the Return of the King, but the closure at least of the relationship arc is thematically important for the whole coming together against the foe thing. And what I'm saying is, it would be nice if this film acknowledged that they existed, uh, which it does not, because it is terrible. Uh, yes, th- this film is rubbish and its existence offends me. No, not recommended. Minus four out of ten. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, it is It is a bad, bad film. Now, I'm going to touch on The Hobbit slightly to begin with, Scott, just because I, I say I did watch it. And the Hobbit has largely the same voice cast. The fact that they were American didn't bother me, actually. I thought it was... And I didn't even think it was strange. It was like, yeah, okay, it's a cartoon and because it's American accent, it's okay. The the idea that, like, sort of otherworldly or ancient settings don't have American voices was originally, I think, just because it was to make it seem other to US audiences who were those films, epics from the past, were mm. kind of aimed at. And it's just kind of, even to Brits like ourselves now, it would sound odd for American accent, but just because we're used to it, I really think it's it's as simple as that. It's not that there's any reason to not have an American accent, because why should a British accent be any more appropriate? It's just, we're now used to that. It's like, mm-hmm. ancient Rome has British accents. Why? Because. Because yes. all people from ancient Rome weren't actually Romans. They were from Somerset or, you know, just north of London or something, you know. Uh, Somerset? But yeah, so that didn't bother me. But the first one, it's it's kind of crappy, ugly, pretty cheaply done and quickly done animation. The first one, so it it largely looks the same as the Return of the King. It doesn't feel anything like it's bad. I wouldn't say that it's good, but it is tolerable enough. I didn't mind watching it, and maybe a lot of it's because there's less of the emissions that the Return of the King has because the Hobbit is a much slighter book, and actually, honestly. It's where it, yeah. it beats the Peter Jackson Hobbit um, there too because they decided that they wouldn't just add in incredible amounts of filler and stretch into three films. You know, The Hobbit is yeah. a children's book and all of the things that happen in The Hobbit fit into one film quite nicely. <laughs> uh, and also that they take my preferred interpretation of it that Tolkien's description of stone giants was just a metaphor um, or something about the way that the rocks were falling off the mountains during the storm, 
whereas Peter Jackson said he thought they were actual stone giants, which I found odd. uh, We're not talking about that film tonight, so I'll stop there. But yeah, because it's a children's film, the original adaptation of The Hobbit, it felt more appropriate. Whereas the Return of the King, which was aimed more at teens and adults by Tolkien himself, it wasn't a children's book, it took that world and made it a much bigger thing, the darker thing which they don't seem to have been cognizant of in any way at all. And then also, once again, please just stop the bloody singing. <laughs> Even like uh, The Hobbit too, and the bits in Lord of the Rings that have the songs, even when I read the book, I skip past them because I find them intolerable. But mm. it's not even like they took, did what, like for Peter Jackson's, again, The Hobbit, took the, the set song, some of the... The songs that were written in The Hobbit. The songs in The Return of the King are just invented from whole cloth and appear to have yeah. nothing to do with anything in the source material at all. Yes, yeah, super um, weird, isn't it? Yeah. And the one um, tolerable song you mentioned, Scott, I suspect, is Where There's a Whip, There's a Way. Yeah. Which is frustratingly catchy, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I don't mind that song, even if I can think it probably shouldn't be a musical, this film. But the rest of it is so bad. By way of comparison, let me tell you that Leonard Nimoy's The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins <laughs> is approximately 20 times better, more tolerable and more appropriate to this film than anything in this film. Yeah. But that's how bad the songs are in this. <laughs> um, so whereas the Ralph Bakshi version, very much an interesting companion piece to something that would two different adaptations of the, the same source material one actually influenced the other and they're both also a different interesting different take on the same source the return of the king is just a steaming pile of cack and should be avoided at all costs yeah and in terms of adaptation is it, it it's almost as though someone's just vaguely described the loose concepts of what happened in the book to someone and then they went and adapted that it's like, basically they, uh, they read the book itself they adapted the elevator pitch didn't they it's like, someone made an <laughs> elevator pitch uh, somebody read what would be nowadays an IMDb plot synopsis and based their entire film on that. <laughs> I think it was just the keywords, actually. Not even the plot synopsis. Just a bunch of keywords for it. Yeah, uh, really strange film. Yeah, for an animated film, too. The biggest problem for me is actually not so much the hugely truncated story. It's just the fact that they seem to have let bring your son and daughter to work day and they've let all the six and seven year olds animate the entire film. It's so ugly. It's so hmm. amateurish and just visually not appealing in any way at all. It's, it's slapdash. Yeah. And I'm, that's, that's kind of, I mean, you might not like the aesthetic of Lord of the Rings, but I think anyone would watch it and kind of appreciate that it at least has one. Yeah, it has a style. Yeah, it has a style. Yeah, it has it, an aesthetic. It's like, you can see the work that went into it, whereas this just looks tawdry. <laughs> really low rent. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which fits with that any of the Rankin and Bass stuff I've seen. I didn't call them hacks earlier just as a joke. I think that <laughs> I think that's a fairly common perception of their output. They're not challenging Studio Ghibli. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> anyway, no, was... they're not. They're not. Um, they, but it's just, it's so, it's just that's a complete lack of care about it. Yeah. That it's just, 
it's product, not art. Yeah, it's uh, it's been produced cheaply and quickly, <laughs> and gotten off their plate as quickly as they can to meet some sort of deadline. And um, yeah, the, the lack of care and attention seems to show all the way throughout this. It's just it's just a really terrible film. <laughs> And as such, I recommend everyone watch it because <laughs> we've suffered through it. And yeah, I mean, let's say I I had no idea this film existed until a few months back, and uh, I think that's probably the way for most people it should it should reign. Um, if you have not seen this, if you've not heard of it, just 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 keep that going. Uh, that's the best way to think of this film is to just not think of it at all. Um, yeah, I'm. I have no idea if I had any concept of his existence or not. Um, it's possible something that's passed through my mind at some point. Been vaguely aware of it in the past, but never certainly never thought about it. And I kind of wish now that I never had, or you never had, since this was um, yes. this one was your idea. But it's <laughs> probably the only thing you need to do is to um, look at look for a clip on YouTube of where there's a whip, there's a way, because you'll see how terrible the animation is, and then see the only. I was going to say highlight, but I guess non-low light of <laughs> of the film is that song because it's the only thing vaguely tolerable to it. And um, curse us later if it gets stuck in your head, uh, which it might. Um, it's kind of one of those, and I don't know if this is being put in my head simply because of the word whip, but there's something kind of simple yet catchy about it in the same way that like the rawhide theme is catchy and uh, memorable. Yeah. Um, but... Now I've suddenly got a mental image of Jake Blue singing this, and it's, it's suddenly got better. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's not a good film. I, I I can't recommend it in any way, shape, or form. Yes, terrible. Avoid. <laughs> yes. So there we go. One sort of hit and one complete miss. So <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Uh, we will be back with you in another ten days or so with a look at what we've managed to see cinemas this month and so until that time if there's anything we've discussed here that you want to talk to us about then please do uh, you can do so on twitter we're at fuds on film on twitter um, we're on facebook facebook.com slash fuds on film you can also email us podcast at fuds so please do uh, but until next time i will bid you adieu my name has been scott morris and i'll be joined again by drew tavendale fare thee well goodbye